Thanks for joining us. My guest this morning is somebody to whom you all owe a huge debt of gratitude, although you don't know it yet. Um, One thing we're going to talk about, he was the uh, 2012 Florida Senior Athlete of the Year. That was when he, well, we'll talk about the details later. Uh, And there's a lot of other things that are just... Susan, it was 2003. 2003? Oh. 2003, the athlete of the year, right. Oh, okay. That was why I couldn't find you as the 2012 athlete of the year. I looked. Uh, <laughs> anyway, welcome, Ron. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much. I'm delighted to be on your show this morning. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I'm delighted to have you. Okay, now the first thing we're going to talk about, because it's what you're best known for, and this is the one everybody's going to go, oh. He's the guy. But we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff, too. And the thing that everybody knows about is, of course, the magnetic strip on the back of the credit card. Now, a lot of people listening don't remember this. I do. When you'd go to pay with a credit card and there was a book like an inch thick uh, sheaf of papers that they had to go through to find your number to make sure your number wasn't on there because these were cards that were not good. And imagine how long that would take. I mean, it had to have taken at least, uh, I'd say real time, at least a minute. Because, of course, the numbers were in order. But still, they had to go through the book and make sure you weren't in there. And so tell us the rest of the story, Ron. Okay. This was back in 19... Actually, they came to me in 1964... And I was working on the project and didn't finish it until 1966 because there was lots of things to do. And it was a major department store that came and said, we have a basic problem that we'd like you to take a look at. And the problem was we have to speed up the service because at that time they called it charge purchases. And people would come in with their charge card, which was their credit card, and all it had on it was their embossed name and the embossed account number. And every month the credit card companies would provide the merchants, the point-of-sale merchants, with this long book or this big book, big thick book, of all the negative accounts. These were people that were not good payers, and they just didn't pay their bills. And they would provide that to the merchants, and the merchants would have the responsibility of going through that big book to see if your number was on that in that book, and if it was in that book, then they would not complete the sale. So the burden was on the merchant to really check the credit. And I, I looked at that as a very simple challenge, and I said, there's got to be a simple solution to this because my entire philosophy is identify the challenge and what's the given, And then what is the solution you're looking for? And everything else is just the journey in between to take you to the point of reaching that solution. So when I looked at that problem, I said, well, geez, what we want to do is just take all those negative account numbers and put it into some kind of memory bucket. And it's not important. At the time, back in 1966, there was all different types of memories and so on and so forth. So we put it into a memory bucket. And by memory, just so people know, it's it's similar to what computer memory, but it was just we didn't have computers. So it was a bulkier way to do it, right? Well, computers were very bulky at the time. There was no Internet. There was no PCs at the time. So when I say a memory bucket, think of a a device that can house a bunch of pieces of little paper with numbers on it. (laughs) And then we had to give somebody, we had to give the merchant the ability to interrogate that. And what do I mean by interrogate? Well, if you had a smart little mouse and you put the mouse in this bucket with all little pieces of paper and say, go get number one, two, three, that little mouse would do that. So what we did, we gave the merchant a little keypad, and the keypad was the, gave him the ability to key in and interrogate the number that, was, that he was looking for in the memory, and if it wasn't there, then he was good to go. And then we built some enhancements in the system. They would write up the little sales ticket, 
and then they put the sales ticket in an automatic embosser. Because years ago, all they had was the hand embosser that they would roll over the little sales slip, and it would emboss the. It, it was a. Uh, um, it was like a 3M paper. It would emboss the account number and the name on that receipt. So we built a little device that was an automatic device, so that if the credit was good, it would automatically roll the the roller across and and complete the sale. If the credit wasn't good, it would lock the card in the machine. So that was really the first invention of how to check credit at the point of sale. So that was really the point of sale credit device. Then. Mm-hmm. Around that time, I said, well, geez, let's speed it up a little bit further. Instead of the merchant having to key in from the keyboard, let's, let's put some smarts in that credit card. And right around that time, put some smarts in that little piece of plastic. Right around that time, reel-to-reel tape recorders came, off, came around. And I said, well, geez, I've got Wait a very... Reel-to-reel had been around for a very long time. Well, first it was wire recorders, and then after the wire recorders... They came out with tape recorders, reel-to-reel tape recorders. So it was around the early 60s that that really became a product. I I thought I remembered that my whole life, which started before the 60s, but maybe I don't. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah, the, the recording of, well, let's say from a standpoint of making it available to the public for mm-hmm. recording processes. Um, magnetic recording. Oh, oh it, it existed in studios, but not for home use. Is that it? Right, not for consumption. Okay, no. okay, okay. So it was reel-to-reel tape recorders, and I figured, geez, a, a very simple approach. I looked at that, and I said, if I could take a little piece of tape and put the account number, record the account number on that little piece of tape, Paste that on the back of the credit card, and then you became, the human became the motor. Because reel-to-reel tape recorders was the read head that would read the magnetic tape, and then two motors that would control the speed of the tape as it passed by the read head. And I'm saying, okay, let's take a little piece of that tape, and now let's make the human the motor. So you would, I'm going to show you on the screen. You're (laughs) You're missing this in Radio Land. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're wiping it through or you're pushing yeah, it in you slowly. All know this. It's called it the swipe, rapid. yeah. Right, so that's the swipe. So the human is the motor, and the information is just on a little segment of the tape, which would be comparable to the, the entire machine playing tape. Which so also that's really explains, the invention. Let, let me interrupt for a second. That also explains why you have to pull it through at a certain pace. It used to be very, very particular. It couldn't be too fast, now, couldn't it's be not, too slow. It's not a certain pace because it's a certain pace on the reel-to-reel tape recorder because if you would speed it up, remember, it would sound like Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And if you would sit down, it would sound like Dracula. Right. Well, all it just has to be fast enough in the swipe so that it can read the tape. And what I've done is I put synchronizations on there so that if it is fast enough, I don't care if the speed is constant as long as it reads the first pulse that says, okay, everything after this will be data. So if you push it in slowly, it's not going to read it. If you pull it out rapidly or swipe it rapidly, now it reads the material that's on that tape and it synchronizes automatically. So we don't really care how fast you do it, as long as it's fast enough to catch the, the start pulse. Okay. And, and that was the invention of the read on the credit card. No. Now, the reason it's been in existence so long, that's a mm-hmm. question that everybody asks me. How come it survived since 1966? It doesn't require energy. Ah. It doesn't require energy. No moving parts. Right. And if it yeah. doesn't radiate, it can't be pirated. Somebody can't come up behind your back pocket and scan it or in your purse. Well, except they can now. No, no. no? Misconception. Ah. The problem about occur after the information goes through the point of sale. Once the information is read off the credit card, now the security begins because that information is in the reader. But it can't read it in your wallet or in your pocket. No. Well, I'm it, getting rid of that little sleeve. Energy. I'm getting rid of that little sleeve that mine's in because it's a hassle. Okay. Now, <laughs> the sleeve, because now in Europe, what they've done is they've adopted the process of the little electronic chip on the card that contains a whole bunch of information. That's the new process uh-huh. to replace the magnetic strip. However, 
you have to have a shield because that requires energy, that radiates, and it could send it. It could be pirated. However, that's not really where the problem exists. The problem exists after it's read in the device that read it. That's where the erroneous information is. However, the public is really being misled because the way it works in the electronic chip is there's a PIN number in there. The account number's in there in the chip and also a PIN number. And the PIN number's dynamic. It constantly changes every time you utilize it. There's an algorithm that does that so that you really can't go ahead and pirate the card, which is fine, but it does radiate. However, the, the problem is that it's still easy for some of these hackers to figure out what the algorithm is, is and, and to really be prepared to come up with the next PIN number that would be proper to be used with that card. Now, it's complicated. However, the credit card companies are saying, well, geez, this is so secure now that we're no longer going to be responsible if somebody pirates that card or steals your, your identity. We're no longer going to cover the cost of um, the use of the card. Or That's not the use of the card, but the... The, uh, the charge. The, the identity theft, basically. Right, the identity theft. Now, that sounds dangerous for, to the consumer. It is dangerous. And it's a misconception from the credit card companies saying, oh, well, now we've got such a secure methodology that we're no longer going to take the responsibility of credit card theft. It's up to the person not to allow that to happen because the PIN number is constantly changing. So what does the consumer do? I mean, do those little shields, those little... Uh, folders uh, work? Well, that's only to prevent the radiation. That's only prevent the scanning of the card. That doesn't prevent the credit card theft from somebody actually going into the point of sale and changing the PIN number. But, but I mean, can it be read from your wallet or your pocket? If you don't have a shield, yes. Oh, that's dangerous. Well, that's your next one, right? That's your next project, is to figure out how to thwart that one. <laughs> I've got a whole long list of things that I want to solve and, and, and help and, and make better. But That's, so that's, that's a question later on, I'm going to ask. But <laughs> so that's the, that's the history of the credit card. Now, I have a question about that, though. The magnetic strip, magnetic tape, as far as I know, records sound. But this isn't sound, so how does that work? Or is that too complicated to matter? No, it can record what we're recording is uh, is uh, pulses. Okay. It's kind of hybrid. That was the, one of the first hybrid systems. So magnetic tape is normally analog, where it's recording modulated sound. Mm-hmm. However, magnetic tape, of course, and it's been doing this for years in computers, mm-hmm. can record binary information on and off, pulses. That makes sense. I just never thought about that. Right. So what you're recording is the ASCII code, binary information. Okay, yeah, ASCII code. The ASCII is a computer language. Right. Because um, not everyone knows that because we don't use computer language. We, being the average person, don't use computer languages anymore. All storage in computers is stored in a binary method. So it's either a on or off condition, or in computer language, they call it, Ones and zeros. Yes, and anyone who watched Star Trek religiously knows that. Right. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, so, that, that uh, culture, that binary world. They couldn't so exist you, by themselves. Yeah. You can take a binary condition of X number of these little pulses and put them together and arrange them in on-off conditions where you can come up with thousands and thousands of combinations which emulates and... Um, pretty much defines what character you're, you're defining. Okay. Now, what, what you have said in many interviews that I've looked at, and I've heard you say this, uh, you don't see problems, problems, you see challenges, and you, you don't solve problems, you, you just, you find, no, wait a minute, I'm getting this wrong. You see There's challenges. an opportunity behind every, you take a, cha- you take a problem, and, and view that and look at it as a challenge. So yes. every problem can be turned into a challenge. Because that makes it and a game, every, not a bad thing. 
No. So every cha- with every challenge, there's an opportunity. Once that, tra- that challenge is solved, and the way you address a challenge is the way we learned it in grade school. This is you one of the things I love. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, and you say, what's the given and what's the solution I'm looking for? With the old word problems that we had, that we received in grade school, there was all kinds of superfluous, superfluous information along with the given. And they didn't uh, tell you, of course, what was necessary, what wasn't. Right, they didn't tell you that. That was your challenge, right. to pull out what was given. And once you can identify what the given is, and then you identify what the solution is that you're looking or seeking, everything else in between is just the journey. And along that journey, there'll be hurdles and there'll be detours and et cetera, et cetera. And you handle those with stickability and flexibility. But yeah. you never lose sight as to what's the given that you're working with. Yeah, because there'd be things like um, if it takes five, if, if John can put up five bricks a minute, five red bricks a minute, and, and Mary can put up ten green bricks a minute, how long does it take to have a 15-foot wall? And the fact right. that they're water green, that color. yeah, but, <laughs> but you have to figure that out. But that, of course, that was a simple example, but they get what you're saying is it's always like that. It's just more complex sometimes. Just carefully examine it and decide what is the given that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Not if, if an automobile is traveling down a road 55 miles an hour and it wants to go from L.A. to New York and it has silver hubcaps and the gal who's driving the car is wearing a black hat with a feather in it, who cares? Right. It's from from yeah. L.A. to New York, and it's traveling at 55 miles an hour. So that's the given. Well, the uh, uh, as I was going to St. Ives rhyme is a perfect example of that. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Seven, blah, 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 blah. How many right. were going to St. Ives? One. I was going to St. Ives. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there were many, many challenges I had in my life. Uh, not that I would, not, I'm not the, the, I'm really not an inventor, I'm a problem solver. Because an inventor would sit in a think tank all day just trying to come up, holding his head and saying, what am I going to invent today? I see an opportunity or I see something that I can solve that would have benefit with my solution and I come up with the answer. So all of my inventions are really solutions to problems that have benefit. Well, that's kind of what Edison did, isn't it? I wasn't around. I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> yes, I thought maybe he told you. <laughs> no, I mean, the stories I've heard of, of great inventors, I think that's usually what it is. They were just trying to solve problems. Yeah, you don't sell the idea, you sell the benefit. Yeah, well, I know W.D. Griffith um, created the film as we know it today, you know, the movie. And he, he solved all kinds of technical problems because he didn't know that's what they were. He just saw them as, as issues for the film. He didn't know they were technical, and so he solved them. Exactly, exactly. There's a solution to every challenge, mm-hmm. and we can do anything we want, not necessarily to the best, but we can strive to be the best, but there's nothing that anyone can accomplish. There was a time I was uh, out on my mountain bike, and uh, I was trying to climb up this hill, but it was too steep to ride. I mean, this was really a mountain. And somebody had told me that there was a real neat thing on the other side, so I was trying to climb it. And dragging the... It was hard to climb, much less drag the bike with me. And then I figured out that if I pushed the bike ahead and clamped on the handbrakes, the, the tires on a mountain bike gripped so well that I could actually pull myself up. So it became a very easy climb. And I thought, hey, what was the problem is now the solution. And then I took it a step further and said, no, it wasn't the solution because it was never the problem. It was just a bike. The, right. Yeah, the, exactly. problem, the problem or solution was all in my mind. So, it's, a way, it's the way you address the challenge. Yes. That's the whole thing. However, there is a little more to it than that because you have the technical know-how to put the the magnetic strip, to code the strip, to put it on the credit card. Well, I look at things. I, I learn something new every day. I'm constantly learning, and I'm always aware, and I'm, I'm paying attention. So that, and I do have a very analytical mind. So I'm able to see solutions. If I didn't have the technical mind, I would actually have to collaborate with someone else that could see. I would define the problem 
uh, take it to them as a challenge, and then discuss it as to how can we resolve it. And I, of course, I do that myself because I do have that experience and that ability. One of the most important things I've found is, remember we talked a little bit about the journey in between yes. the given yes. and the solution? That journey is really the roadmap. And if you want to convert the word roadmap into a flowchart or a diagram or something, a graphic representation, it's you take your concept, your ideas, and you map it in a way where each and every element that you can think of in this roadmap becomes a box, and that box has a definition. And now you look at those boxes and you tie them together with arrows saying, in order to accomplish my solution, I have to do this first, and this second, and so on and so forth. And you begin to build your roadmap called the flowchart. Mm-hmm. And along in the flowchart, when you sit back and look at it, you say, well, wait a minute. There's a decision that has to be made. I need a decision box because I have to decide, do I want to go to the right or do I want to go to the left? Do I want to go to this box or the next box? So the end result is you come up with a flowchart that, if you hand that flowchart to someone else, they can look at it and say, I get it. I understand what you're trying to tell me. Because if you try to put down all of your thoughts in the narrative form first, most likely you wouldn't have them in the proper order that would be self-explanatory to someone else. Well, yeah, that makes sense. For communication purposes, flowcharting works wonderful. And then numbering every element in the flowchart and then writing a, a narrative from that, stating this is how I see this entire function or concept or idea working. And that's a great communication device. And I use that in everything that I do. Okay. Whether I'd be making a movie, whether I'd be inventing a widget, whether I would be talking about some kind of process, whether I'd be cooking a cake with a recipe. Okay. I want to okay. uh, go back a little bit, though. You actually build the machines that you create in your mind. I mean, you don't just come up with the concept and the technology to do it. You actually build the machine, right? Well, in the past. Don't forget, a lot of the things that I came up with at that time, I did have engineering background. And That's, capability. That was going to be and my next question. Right. But for years... Um, I was really the, I, I hired many, many people to do what I, what I was capable of doing, but they would do it for me because it was more important that I managed and created mm-hmm. and analytically followed the project. And that is one of the great uh, marks of leadership. You, you delegate. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. So Well, and plus what happens is that the people you delegate to also can be very creative in their thinking and their approach and come back with good ideas that you want to share and take the necessary steps to come up with the best solution. Yeah, they may come up with stuff that you didn't think of because you may be able to do each thing better, but you can't do everything better. Absolutely. Okay, now let's talk about some of the other uh, inventions of yours. I know the ML... Uh, MLS. Multiple, multiple listings. Yeah, help me out here. What's the S for? Multiple listing service. Service. Okay. And this is what um, real estate real estate brokers use, agents. Right. And can you give us a, like a 25 words or less on that? Well, if somebody uh, many, many miles away as to where their end destination wants to be and, and acquire a property, they have a desired interest. In other words, they want a property that has three bedrooms, close to a school, swimming pool, etc., etc., and they're going to move from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, they'd like to know that when they get out to the West Coast, there will be realtors there that have properties that meet their desire. Okay. some feedback. So basically, it's what we would call now a um, shared listings. What? Yeah, but oh gosh, what's a database? A database, and the realtors would put in all of the available properties that they have in a listing into this database, and then any other realtor could share that information in that database and have 
that available. So if somebody calls and says they're coming out and this is what I want, they know that that property can be available because they had that listing information already. So was now, this one of the first? Time, yeah. Was this at the, the time in the 60s, in mm-hmm. the early 60s or mid-60s, there weren't devices that could be used for inquiry stations. For instance, um, people, the realtors needed portability. So I devised a box that had an acoustic coupler because touchtone telephones were just coming out and touchtone was a great means to transmit information. However, most people had the dial phones. We had a rotary dial. So my device that I built had an acoustic coupler in it where they would establish a call, then take the phone and put it into this acoustic coupler, and then there would be a keypad or thumb wheel switches that would generate touchstones that could transmit to the database, and then they can acquire back. Okay, so it wasn't, the, the really revolutionary thing was not that it was a database, but that you developed a way to communicate the database across the country. Right, and the other device we came up with was, I don't know if you remember the name teletypes? Sure. Okay, we would take a teletype printer and use that as the receiving device and then create a touchtone pad on the, what the, where the keyboard would be so that you could key in touchtone information to the database and get back printed hard copy of the response that you're looking for. Also, in addition to the pad, we had other features where they were little thumb wheel switches where you can set up different parameters that would represent different functions and different types of housing and desired uh, information that you want back. So you could key in or set up on the thumb wheel switch the area that you wanted, the state, um, and, and these switches would be represented by state, area, type of housing, location, um, whether it was uh, how many bedrooms and how many baths. So then you push the button, it would automatically scan in an entire series of touchstones and then come back with the printed hard copy of the satisfying that inquiry. So, so that's what we built then. So this is something, the concept, I mean, this is used in many different ways with many different industries now, but you created it. You were the first, right? right? Well, that was years ago. Now they have much more sophisticated means. Well, but sure, but... but invention. Right. Yeah, you came up with the concept of how to do it. Right. It was a communication concept. Yeah. So it solved many problems, right. So tell me about how this worked in the stock market, or was it something else? I don't know anything about the stock market except what I learned in the movie Trading Places, and I don't know how accurate that is. <laughs> well... The stock market, when I finally got involved with the stock market, and and I don't want to bore you with how I became involved with the stock market, I ended up with, I was doing a lot of business with Western Union, and I was refurbishing teletype equipment, and I ended up with, and I acquired quite a bit of it when they were divesting themselves of the teletype business and going into the satellite business, and I had acquired a lot of equipment that was very unique to the inquiry type of teletypes that they used at the stock change, the stock exchange for inquiry systems on the trading floor. Now you're talking about the ticker tape, right? No, not necessarily the ticker tape. On the trading floor, the brokers would have to inquire about specific securities, and they needed a printout, mm-hmm. and they would, and that was connected internally to the stock exchange system. So the brokers would be all around different areas on the trading floor, and they needed a specific quote on a trade or on a a stock. They would walk over to the machine, and these were teletypes that were actually mounted on the wall. They would key in the ticker code, and they would get back the actual price and information on that stock. So it was strictly an inquiry station, and I had a lot of that equipment. So they contacted me because... I had acquired many hundreds of special, these special wall mount teletypes, and they were going to expand, do some trading floor expansion in the 70s, and Western Union no longer had them, so I was the provider. And I leased them to the <laughs> stock exchange on a full payout the yeah. So they saved a lot of money, and I became the maintenance company to maintain them. So I had to hire some people to run around the trading floor every day, and if a machine... Um, had a problem, 
we would take that out and replace it with a spare. And then I would take it back to my shop in New Jersey where I, I, I had a place there. And they would repair it and they'd bring it back the next morning. So I spent a lot of time at the New York Stock Exchange seeing a lot of old type of functioning that had to be automated. Okay. So I began automating the exchange in many different ways, and that was just time after time. Because don't don't forget, in the seventies, the exchange had been trading for about two hundred years, and a lot of the old methods were still in operation, and they hadn't automated tremendously. So being there every day, doing my job with what we provided for them, I was seeing all these opportunities and these challenges and coming up with solutions for each challenge, and the exchange loved it. Then there was one interesting thing that occurred. By 1983, I recognized the exchange uh, had two products, two main products. And, they were, and I just want to interrupt to say you're listening to, in other words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning. Okay, so there were two products. Two main products, equity products and fixed income products. Equity means stock. It was the capital market. And then fixed income is bonds. The bonds that they traded were corporate bonds, and they were listed corporate bonds. What that meant was that if your stock or your equity was listed on the exchange, AT&T or General Motors was listing their stock on the exchange, then your debt, your bonds, your corporate bonds were listed also. So the bonds were not traded electronically, but the um, stocks were. They had monitoring systems that the brokers in their offices could monitor all the stocks that they were trading, but the bonds were traded in an auction crowd on the bond trading floor. And that's like what you saw in trading places, only that was common. Right. Uh, that was um, um, commodities. Mm-hmm. So the New York Stock Exchange traded bonds in an auction crowd. And what I did, to make the story really short, was I automated that by giving the um, brokers the ability to have bond quotation information on their desk instead of having to be on the trading floor. Wow, so it's a whole different picture now. It's not that screaming pit that we saw in, in the film, huh? And also in Quicksilver. No, that's... Right. That was for commodities and futures, but the corporate bond market now traded at the corporate desks where they traded their stocks. Okay. So now what effect does that have on me as someone who does not deal with the stock exchange? You know, the average person, how do we feel the result of that? Well, greater efficiency at the marketplace. Okay. Much efficiency, much greater speed. Uh, more transparency. I guess the summation is, yes, it provided tremendous transparency, and it was in operation for over a quarter of a century. Okay. And has somebody invented something now that is... uh... Oh, there's more people in the market. There's more people doing it. There's more enhancements. But basically, that was the beginning of the automation of the monitoring. So that was the beginning of transparency, for corporate listed bonds. Wow. Now that is huge. This was the beginning was of transparency. Good. Yes. That, that is huge. Okay. I spent over a quarter of a century at the New York Stock Exchange just coming up with new innovative ideas for them. <laughs> when I first fun. started there in the 70s, at the end of the day, the paper pile was three feet deep. Oh I don't gosh. know if you remember seeing that on the floor when you would see pictures of the New Exchange, I people guess, yeah. around in, in a pool of, of papers because everything was paper transactions. When yeah. I left the exchange, see your shoes. I'm sorry, we no missed more. that. We missed that. When I left the exchange. Yeah, the, the floor was absolutely clean. You can see your shoes. You wouldn't be walking oh. through truck room. Cool. It was all uh, Excellent. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to switch gears completely here and go to your uh, athletic prowess because i got to tell you, it's a bit humbling to me that there's a guy who's, what, you're 78? 78. 78, uh, who can kick my butt. Uh, 
oh, I would keep up with you. <laughs> no, you might actually do a good bit better. So let's talk about this Florida Athlete of the Year. Uh, or more importantly, why you ride a, bu- a bike. It, by the way, listeners, he rides 30 miles a day. Now, granted, this is Florida most of the time where there are no hills. Correct. Personally, I find it harder to uh, to ride when there's no hills, but I can't do that. I can't ride flats, but the average person does much better on flats. And you you have a little trouble walking, though, don't you? Yes, I've had some serious injuries. I have an inoperable back condition. I had some serious injuries um, when I was in the service. That was Korea, uh, right? Yeah, unfortunately. However, I'm here to talk about it, so it's not that unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then when I came out of the service, um, I had a very serious automobile accident where a, a uh, intoxicated driver went through a traffic light mm. and hit my car head on and mm. really messed me up big time where I had no discs in my spine for the vertebrae, the lumbar vertebrae 3, 4, and 5. Wow. So I bone on bone. And in order to uh, have that corrected, which is inoperable, they would have to fuse my spine and I would be confined to a wheelchair even though I had difficulty walking when some of these accidents occurred. And I had many other back injuries along the way, too. So I figured I have to work this out myself and fix it myself. I'm in constant pain, 10, 10 pain every day, wow. with sciatic pain all the way down to my leg, excruciating. And I've taught myself to handle that pain. I've trained my brain to handle the pain, mainly because if I took narcotics on any kind of medication, it would deaden my brain and I couldn't do the things that I want to do. I couldn't be productive in my life. And I just refused to have that. And I refused not to be able to walk. So, oh, about 30 years ago, I guess it's almost 30 now, I started riding a bicycle because I discovered, and I did that for therapy, when I discovered when I was on the bike, And if I bent over, if I bought a racing bike, a road bike, and bent over in the racing position, it opened up all the facet joints in my spine. The bones are no longer rubbing against each other. They're opened up. It it stopped pinching the nerves. And lo and behold, my excruciating pain, as long as I was on the bike, went away. And, And it helped me psychologically to train my brain to say, I can handle this. I can live with this because I'm just going to block that out. So I started riding every day and then discovered something I never even knew about, triathlons. And I said, wow, this is great, but what's a triathlon? Well, you have to swim, you have to bike, and you have to run. Well, I can't swim because it hurts my back too much. I can't run because that pounding is unbelievable. You know, I can't walk for more more than maybe 100 yards and stand for maybe 5 or 10 minutes. However, they had relay. And in the relay teams, oops, I'm getting feedback again. Why am I getting feedback? Uh, Susan? I don't know. Are you are you still getting it? Yes, I am. I have Can no idea. Wait? Okay, I, that's better. Okay. No, uh, no, it's a little difficult to speak. Can you maybe divert the speaker or, or turn it a little bit? Um, I don't know why it's happening. Yeah, I don't either. Um, uh, well, I'll try and live with this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, triathlons. Okay, so I discovered that in the triathlons they were offering okay, now, the first thing. Wait, the first thing you have to know about triathlon, because this is near and dear to my heart, it's three syllables, not four. Right. Triathlon. <laughs> right. Triathlon. Correct. So... I took the biking part of the relays, so I would have a runner, I would have a swimmer, and I would do the biking. And we were doing so well as a team, we were starting to win medals. So we won bronze, and then we won silver, and then there was a couple years when we won gold as a team, and was I was really impressed. Wait, was this as a senior team, or was this just in open competition? Open, open class. In other words, it didn't matter. My, my runners were in their... 20s and 30s, my swimmers were in their 20s and 30s, 
And when I started, um, I started about 20 years ago. So I was in my 50s or 60s. I was in actually in my 60s. Wow. So, and I was doing great because I was riding so much every day. I was in, I was very in good, I was really in good shape. And then I discovered that there was the Senior Olympics for each state had the Senior Olympics. And then of the Senior Olympics, each county had Olympics. And what it was, it was time trials. So it wasn't where you were racing against others. You were meeting uh, time trials. And the time, time trials, trials in case people games. don't know, time trials, each person rides, on, they're racing the clock, basically, not each other. Right. You're racing against the clock, right. Yeah. And they had three different categories, 5K race, a 10K, a 10 k 10K race, which is 10 kilometers, and a 20K race. And they would separate you. They would disperse you like a minute apart. So you would take the course, and from start to finish, they would time you as to how fast you uh, completed the course over your speed. And I was doing really well. And I was starting to win medals at a county level. And then if you met the commitment at the county level, they would take the five best winners in each county in your age category, and that was Senior Olympics. It started at age 50, and it would go to 55, then 55 to 60, then 60 to 65, and so on and so forth. So I was constantly moving up, and I was winning in those categories, whether it was bronze, silver, or gold, and that would entitle me to go on to the state level. And then the state would have different senior uh, time trials. And in 2003, I did so well, I became Athlete of the Year, Senior Athlete of the Year in the state of Florida. Yeah, see, that to me, this story here is more impressive. Honestly, what you, the inventions are phenomenal and have changed the world, but I think somebody would have done it if you hadn't, because these are problems that needed to be solved. Correct. But this... You could, I think most people would have had the fusion or taken the drugs or something. And I'm still living with the problem and I can handle it. I've trained my brain to handle the pain and I teach others to do the same. How do you do that? I mean, I, you can't give us the whole process, obviously, but... Well, if you think about it, pain originates at the source, but it's actually felt by the brain because it's the receiver of the signals. Right, it's your brain that tells you that your hand or whatever is feeling pain. That's right. So if I, if I educate myself to the point that this is something that I have to live with, there is a possibility of getting relief at times, and I just have to train myself that this is a toothache and it's not going to go away, so just learn to live with it, and that's part of your life. Yeah, but you're talking about level 10 pain. Yes. Then. That generally, uh, that's 10 out of 10, that generally means you can't function. Well, what are your options? My options are to become a vegetable or to become totally incapacitated and have to live in a wheelchair and not be able to do what I love to do and not be able to ride my bike and not be able to walk. In fact, most of the time I use a cane, but recently, over the last few months, I've parked the cane and said, I'll try and, and live with this for as long as I can and just sit down every few minutes to rest and then continue on. So I don't do a lot of traveling where I'm touring or things like that, but I do travel. When I go to the airport, I do have to get a, a wheelchair to get to the gate because it's too far to walk without stopping. But um, I walk down the gangplank or the, uh, the runway myself. Mm -hmm. to uh, to go get seated and I'm just I'm living with it and I do it with a smile yeah you do because nobody wants to hear about everyone else's problem and it's not life threatening and there's people with serious problems so it's just painful and there's lots of people that walk around with back pain it's just my back pain is so serious because it's bone on bone that I just have it intensely all the time and actually it's 10 but I really tell myself it's only five. Ah, there you go. It's all in your mind right. anyway. It's all in my mind. 
Yeah. I mean, that part is true. It's just there, it isn't usually thought that there's a way of getting beyond what your mind is telling you. The idea that you can tell your mind is, is still relatively untapped. So now you know my entire history and you're going to let me go in the next five minutes, right? Okay. One other thing I want to ask you, though. You say, I'm looking here at your blogs, and it says, we need to take action in this country to create new jobs and put people back to work. But you say re-educating people for the new jobs and technology is not where it needs to end. We need to come up with new types of jobs. You mentioned urban mining. Yes, in other words, you can't expect people who were building automobiles all their life and they're senior now, not necessarily senior citizens, but they're a little bit older than teenagers, you can't expect them to be totally re-educated in the high-tech world. So there has to be positions that are needed that they can fulfill and be feel productive again. And that's this urban mining and e-cycling to really save this country. Right now, we're spending lots of dollars to have a lot of our e-cycling products removed from this country, shipped overseas for those people to turn around and turn them back into commodities. Uh, so we're, we're doing two things. We're burying our trash, which is not really trash, all of it. And we're also shipping our old refrigerators, computers, air conditioners, tires, and things like that out of this country because we're not burying them and we're paying to have them removed and shipped off to China and other nations who are turning those things back into commodities. So we and should be mining those parts rather we than... We should be mining those parts. There's, there's a, a company in Europe based out of Germany that they have 60 magnificent operations that can cycle 10 tons of electronic tires, uh, refrigerators, e-cycling products every day and turning that into commodities that are three, two and three times the value of what it would cost to build the e-cycling plant. And that's what we have to do more of here in this country. And I explained that in my blog. Okay, and the blog it puts is... back to work. Yeah, people want to work. That is true. The blog is thegrandfatherofpossibilities.com. Well, I've even, Susan, I've even simplified that. Oh, good. <laughs> because people were making a lot of mistakes putting in that, that misspelling possibilities and so on and so forth. So, so my, my new website, which takes you to the blog, is very simple. It's Ron, R-O-N, dash, Klein, K-L-E-I-N, Ron-Klein.com. And all of this is going to be on the website, my website, the radio website. Um, So uh, you don't have time for anything else, do you? No, that's about it. I've got some scheduled calls, but I'm I'm delighted that you had me on. Oh, I am. And how to take the little piece of tape off my camera so you can see me. (laughs) Okay. So... Ron, thank you so much. This is one of my favorites so thank far. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. I, I know we've been trying to schedule this for oh. quite some time, and, and my schedule just goes a little bit haywire, but I was delighted to be able to do this today. I'm just, I, I am so, I mean, I was already impressed, and not by the credit card thing, but I've talked to you, and I was impressed just by you, but now I'm even more impressed. <laughs> this is fantastic. I'm so well, glad I know but you. I'm just, but I'm just a plain, ordinary guy, just like everybody else. No, you're and not. You're a guy who uses his mind. You um, you don't let things stop you the way a lot of people do. That's the difference. You, well, in your we can words, accomplish anything we want. There's yeah. no limit to what we can accomplish. And it's so important to, to, you know, there's two things. A lot of people hear, but they don't listen. And a lot of people have sight, but they don't have any vision. So you have to have vision, and you have to listen and learn something new every day, even if it's just walking down the street and being aware of what's around you. I have a great little story to tell you, if you want. I just just want to say one thing. You are like everyone else in that we all can do what you do, but most of us don't. Right. 
Okay. And most of us don't pay attention. And it's so That's important true. to be aware. Mm-hmm. And I tell this little story in, in all of my talks when mm-hmm. I when I get get up on stage. There are three people that wanted to go shopping at a mall. Two men and a woman. And they pulled up to the mall parking lot. They parked the car, closed the door, and the driver gets out and he says, Oh, no, I locked the keys in the car. He said, I think I'll go get a coat hanger, jam it down through the window and see if I can open up the door. And his passenger said, You don't want to do that. That'll look like we're trying to steal the car. How about if I just break the little back window, reach my hand in and grab the keys? And the driver said, That would really make it look like we're trying to steal the car. And the woman, who was very perceptive and very intelligent, she walked up. She said, I don't have any ideas to what you two guys are going to do, but, you know, it's starting to rain and the top is down. (laughs) That's why we have to be aware. (laughs) That was actually, something like that was one of the puzzles in my newsletter last month. Okay. (laughs) But this is why you have to pay attention and be aware of what's going on around us. And it'll make us a better person. There you go. If you're going to listen, hear. If you're going to look, see. Right. Pay attention. Pay attention. Not and the answer to success is being smart, daring, and different. And the daring has a lot to do with it. Right. If you don't risk it, nothing's going to happen. you got to dare. Exactly. Ron, thank you so much. I wish we could keep going, but I know you have other things to do. I appreciate you taking this time out for me. Thank you, Susan. It's been a delight. Okay. And that's all he had time for. I was delighted to get that much because he had originally said he only had a half hour. So I got almost a full hour with him. I thought about editing it down to a half hour and combining it with someone else. But I really thought Ron deserved his own show. So I hope you enjoyed it. You've been listening to In Other Words, part of PWN Radio's Women in the Morning. You can find us at pwnradio.net. You can find me, Susan Share, and my editing and writing business at In Other Words Group, spelled just like it sounds, In Other Words Group.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us again. Bye bye. In other words. In other words. In other words. In other words. In other words.